turn in our Bibles to Jude. I was going to try to finish this up tonight, but um, we got one more week. So we will be meeting next Wednesday for those who are really committed, because next week we got a full, full week, especially for the men. We meet on Thursday night, and then we got Friday night, Good Friday service. So we're still going to do the Wednesday night and close out this final study with the doxology of Jude. But, uh, so if you can make it next week, that'd be great. But let's open a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, look in, into God's word. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your grace and your mercy, and Lord, we thank you for uh, just bringing us here, allowing us to be here tonight, and to uh, worship you in spirit and truth, and thank you for Rudy and his gifts and his talents, and how he uses them for your glory, and, and Lord, it's good to hear people sing praises to you, and so Father, we pray tonight, now that we open up your word, that you would uh, speak your truth to our hearts and our minds, as only you can, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So we were, we've been looking at looking, uh, living victoriously in times of apostasy. And this is uh, the second study in this, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 23 tonight. Um, last week, just a reminder, we looked at the first point, and that was that we need to base our understanding on what the apostles taught. And we talked about the importance of what they taught. And then it, it tells us to remember that. And then also the instructions that they gave us about the false teachers that crept into the church. Uh, they pointed out that their attitudes they'll display, they'll be scoffers, the ambitions they'll have. They will follow their ungodly passions. Uh, the antagonism that they cause are, are divisions within the church. Uh, the authority upon which they operate, they're worldly people, they're natural people. And then lastly, they don't have any spiritual life. They're devoid of the Spirit. And so we're going to move on from basing our understanding on what the apostles taught to basing our life or your life on God's principles. And this is what Jude wants us to understand here um, tonight. And so we want to look at um, verses 22 to 23 tonight. And hopefully we can get through this. Uh, together. So let's look at verse uh, 22, or 20, excuse me, 20. He says, but you, beloved, notice he started off, but you, before, and we said this is kind of a transition. He's been talking about these false teachers all along, and now he throws out this contrast, but you, Christians, because this is who he's written to, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. And so the first point here tonight is that how do we build our life on godly principles, on God's principles? First of all, it has to be conformed to the teaching of God's word. Uh, he Notice he says there in verse 2, or verse 20, he says, Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Uh, we've seen Jude as a letter writer. He wrote this letter. We've seen him as a preacher and even a historian as he looked back into the Old Testament to some of the things. And now really with this first command here he gives us, we see him, you could say, as an architect. Because he's talking about building something. 
And he, he's using a term here that really applies to laying a foundation, building upon that foundation. And he writes this command, this, and he puts it really in his own words, what Paul wrote to Timothy. He told Timothy uh, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body may be built up. He shows us that. Um, he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up um, and to uh, give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And one thing that a lot of people don't understand today is all the ministries of a church, doesn't matter what the ministry is, it should have some form of resulting in edification. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday school, doesn't matter if it's preaching on Sunday morning, doesn't matter if it's even fellowship time over here. It doesn't matter where you're serving at. Okay, there should be some form of edification in that. And you're just fulfilling what God has commanded us to do. In Romans 14, 19, Paul wrote, wrote, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. And look at what he says, the mutual upbuilding, the mutual building up of one another within the body of Christ. Or you remember in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, 2, 7, Colossians, Paul writes this, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, he says, so walk in him. And then he says this in verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in your faith. That's the goal of every Christian. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And if you just turn quickly over to the book of Ephesians, this is where Paul kind of gives us this formula for the church. Uh, how the church should grow, how the church should be run, really. Um, look at Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, in other words, those who serve the body of Christ, he gave all those offices and, and those um, ministries. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, a lot of times churches think, well, it's the pastor's job to do all the ministry or it's the elder's job. No, that's not our job at all. That's your job. <laughs> We're to equip you to do the job. Um, he says, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See, if we go to a church that has no edification at its core, you're not going to be built up in your faith. And he says, well, how long does this go? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer, here's the reason, why do we want to be built up? So we're no longer children, speaking of spiritually children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Instead of doing that, go, don't go down that road. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when, we par when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's, that's a great description 
of a biblical church. That's what we're called to be doing. And even in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, when we were going through that, Paul wrote this to them. He said, therefore, encourage one another and build what? One another up, just as you were doing. And so Paul here, I mean, Jude here instructs the readers of this letter that he wrote, and also us, uh, that we have to continue to build ourselves up upon the foundation of the most holy faith. Um, he illustrates his message with a reference to the building trade, building on a foundation. Um, the term that, that Jude uses here, he, he, he chooses to rally the troops. It's, it, it's borrowed from the realm of, of architecture, this word build. It's a present active participle translated building yourselves up. And it has an, an, kind of an uh, imper imperative kind of a uh, sense to it, meaning that this is something that is not optional for the Christian. It's not optional for you to be built up in your faith. That isn't something that you just get to check the box afterwards and never worry about it. No, this is an ongoing building up in the faith. Uh, the idea refers to personal edification, to spiritual growth, but it also infers that you're building on something. It would be a fool who would just, you know, go down on the bay here and just start building walls. <laughs> it wouldn't last very long if there's no, what, foundation. You have to have a foundation. See, and that's what he's telling us here Jude is saying, remember what they taught you. Remember what they talked to you about. And this is what you should be building yourself up in your most holy faith. Now, be careful here because some of us think, well, that's our faith. That's my faith. He's talking about my. No, he's not. This is not referring to your personal faith. Your personal faith isn't holy faith. The Bible never describes it as such. That which is holy, the Bible refers to is that which is the word of God. It's, it's the foundation that God has laid for us to build upon. Um, remember back in verse 3 when Jude says that we should contend earnestly, what? For the faith. That's not our faith. That's the faith of all Christendom that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's referring to the word of God that's called the faith here. Contend for it. And when we build ourselves up in this most holy faith, it's, it's like what Paul uh, wrote to Timothy, and, and Timothy, he said, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise in salvation. That which is called holy is God's word. So we have to understand, if we want to avoid spiritual disaster, if we don't want to go down the road of these apostates, okay, we must always be conformed to the word of God. We have to be building our life on this principle. And, and that is the holy faith that we are to continually build our life on. And you say, well, how do, I, how do I apply this? Well, ask yourself this question. When you have a decision to be made in your life, whatever it might be, whether it's financial, maybe it has to do with your business or your family or your home, um, whatever it is, ask yourself each time when you make that decision, am I, am I making this decision on the basis of a, a specific principle in God's word? Or is this just me thinking, hey, this looks like a good idea? Are you basing your life on God's principles? 
Another way to ask this question from a negative standpoint is basically to say, when I make a decision, is there any principle in God's word that I'm violating by making this decision? You know, and it doesn't matter whether it's financial, whether it's relationships, whether it's whatever. If you're going to avoid spiritual disaster, we have to reject the way of the world, right? And we have to cling to what God says is true. We have to reject what, what the world is telling us. Um, we have to be doctrinally strong in our beliefs. And unfortunately, just a lot of believers aren't today. They, they just aren't. They've bought into what the world is selling them, all the philosophies, all the political correctness, everything. And, and so when it comes to making a decision in their life, it's not so much does this offend God, but does this offend someone else? They're more worried about that than they are offending God. And so we have to understand that he calls the Christian community to build. Um, it's as if he's walking into our midst and he says, you know what? It's time to build, people. Let's get ready. Roll up your sleeves. You, you've been dwelling too long, too close to the ground. We need to build some walls here. We need to build a structure. You can't just come and stand on the foundation every week. Let's build something. The apostles already poured the structure for you. They gave you Jesus. Now build yourselves up in him. And what Jude is telling us is we have to know the faith. We have to study God's word. And the challenges facing the church are grave if this isn't done. And they require all the structural support that the Bible can give. And so if we're to become strong, if we're to become strong personally, if we're to become strong as a church, we need to make sure that we're building upon and building ourselves up in the faith. And I know no better way to do this than to what? Spend time, right, in God's word. It doesn't matter whether it's in your personal time, whether it's under a teacher, whether it's, you know, coming to a Bible study like this. You're willing to invest. Um, Kent Hughes, who's a commentator, he wrote this. He says, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You can't be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. And, and a lot of polls are telling us today, uh, people who attend churches on a regular basis couldn't even tell you the books of the Bible in order, let alone tell you what's in them. They wouldn't have a clue. See, we got a problem here. We have a real problem. And so we have to commit ourselves to building. If you're going to avoid going down this other road, you have to conform your life to the teaching of God's word. But you can't just say, well, yeah, okay, I'll conform and not know what it is. You know, that would be silly. And so you have to just ask yourself, how, what are you basing your life on? Are you basing it on principles in God's word? Or are you just basing it on what you think is a good idea for, for whatever? Well, secondly, it kind of brings us to the next point. We don't want to violate some principle. Well, the way we can get around that, it's controlled by the Holy Spirit. A life that is honoring to the Lord, a life that is building upon God's principles, is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. He follows up right there in, in verse 20. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And it's almost like some people would say, well, you can't do that. How are you to build yourself up? You're right. You can't do it. <laughs> That's why he says, and praying in the Holy Spirit. 
praying in the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to help us. Ephesians 6.18 tells us that we should be praying always with all prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in the Spirit. And this is important that we understand what this means. It's not talking about speaking in tongues as a lot of charismatic people will tell you. Oh, that means praying in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Uh, Praying in the Spirit means you're talking in angel language. Well, what, what language is the language of angels? They say this all the time. Point to a scripture where an angel ever said anything in scripture to anybody, and the person said, what? I don't understand. You're speaking angel talk. Sorry. No, they always spoke in the language of the people that we're trying to communicate with, right? I mean, it only makes sense. So don't buy this stuff that people are selling. Oh, it's some gibberish. It's some prayer language. It gets you closer to God. That is basically what comes out of these apostate teachers, okay? And we've been through all that in 1 Corinthians, and we're not even going to go into that. But it's, it's really speaking here of a life that is consistent with the Holy Spirit's will. His desires, not yours. His directives, not yours. His decrees, not yours. You want His will to be revealed to you through the plain commands of Scripture. So guess what? If you want to know what the plain commands of Scripture are, then you have to spend some time delving into the Bible and reading it for yourself and asking God, wow, okay, here's a principle. Am I living this out this way? Okay, it indicates a life that's completely dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll just be honest, a lot of times when I pray, um, after my prayer time, I'll think back and I'll think, boy, that's a really selfish prayer. Just very surfacey and very selfish And we pray for things sometimes that we ought not to pray for because we don't know what the Word of God says. We haven't spent the time. We don't know if it's God's will. You know, we've bought into the whole thing, well, I'm just going to pray for this, and God's this genie, and if I rub the bottle hard enough, he'll come out and give me whatever I want. We don't know if it's the will of God. And so we just totally pray in a selfish way a lot of times. And and God teaches us the importance of praying in the Spirit. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And this tells us, in Romans 8, Paul tells us how the Spirit actually helps us in our prayers. It points it out in verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If you don't think you're weak, then we got a whole other issue. But it helps us in our weakness. Remember who's writing this. This is the Apostle Paul, right? He didn't say helps you. He said helps us in our weakness. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, what, groanings too deep for words, which is another example that this isn't speaking in tongues. Because if it's groanings too deep for words, that means they can't even be uttered. Okay, you're not going to hear it. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So it it points out very clearly that the Spirit's will and the Father's will and even, you know, asking things in Jesus' name are one and the same. Now, when you close your prayer in Jesus' name, that's not some little formula that if you don't say that at the end of your prayer, God's not going to hear you okay, and we've kind of grown accustomed to closing our prayers in Jesus' name. 
As a matter of fact, if somebody doesn't say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer and you're in a prayer group, you're like, well, are they done? Are they going to, you know, it's going to be awkward. Should I start? What's going on? So it's kind of like a cue almost. Okay, I'm done with my prayer. You can start now. But it means so much more than that, right? It means that you're praying in the desire of Christ. It's as if he's praying that prayer for you. Is that reflective of his, of his heart, of his desire? And so it's, it tells us that we don't know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit kind of runs interference. You know, sometimes we're praying for things, and the Spirit is probably going, yeah, that one's not gone. <laughs> I'm going to cancel that one right here, right? Because we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We're praying emotionally, or we're praying what we think looks best for the situation. And God is saying, no, no. He always does things according to the will of God. And, you know, why do I point this out? Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because praying by the means of the Holy Spirit means that you're controlled by the Spirit. You're not controlled by the flesh. Which has got to mean that the Word of God itself is affecting your personal prayer life. Your dependency upon God is built upon the most holy faith. It's kind of a big circle. It just works itself right around. Um, Praying by the means of the Spirit is related to building on your most holy faith. Constantly praying by means of the power and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is the total opposite of selfish prayer. It's, it's saying, God, I want your will. I want to live by your principles. I want your Spirit to lead me, to guide me, direct me, even in my prayer life. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us before the Father with genuine sympathy and really a fervor. And so when we pray in the Holy Spirit, we're submitting ourselves to him. And that's so important because you know what? That's what leads us to verses like John 14 when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. <laughs> Remember that? He says in verse 15 of John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. As a believer, we have that Holy Spirit living within us. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way, okay, but it's very true. It's a truth. You can take it to the bank. If, you're, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're genuinely born again, the, the Holy Spirit literally resides with you 24-7. That should cause us to pause and say, hmm, how am I living my life when no one else is looking? The Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is going through it with you. That's a little nerve-wracking. I mean, think if Jesus was here physically and he's followed you around all day. You think that would change your behavior? I think it would change mine. I'll tell you that right now. First John chapter 5, John writes this in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so it's, it's very important that we put this blanket over it, that this is according to God's will, not ours. We've got to change our attitude about prayer. Prayer is an attitude of dependence upon God, 24-7. That's why the Bible says pray always. You don't have to be on your knees. You don't have to be in a church. 
And so we have to be conformed to the teaching of God's word. We have to be controlled by the spirit. Thirdly, Jude points out that we have to be committed to God himself and everything. Look at what he says in the next phrase there, back to Jude, verse uh, 21. He says, keeping yourselves in the love of God. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Now, when a lot of people read this, they, they kind of, it, it appears to be somewhat unguarded. And, you know, I've heard people even go to uh, 1 Peter 1.5 and say, well, we're already protected by the power of God through faith unto salvation, you know, and, and, and to exhort us to keep ourselves is useless. I mean, who are we? We're, 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 we, we couldn't do that if we tried. Yet look at the connection, and you'll see that it lends no sanction to the, the proud idea that a man can keep himself apart from the grace of God. Um, for the, the sentence that precedes, it says what? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Remember, to keep yourselves, to, to build yourselves, you also do this by praying in the Holy Spirit, confessing that you're dependent upon his divine power. You're not going to do this on your own. And um, when you stop and think about it, I mean, you can't really move yourself outside of God's love anyway. The Bible says that he, he's the one who keeps us, right? He will hold us, what, fast? We sing that song, and that's true, all right? So he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, what is he really saying here? It's saying guard. It's saying watch. Keep yourselves toward Loving God. And how do you know if you're loving God or not? The Bible's pretty clear. Um, it, it tells us that if you love God, you'll what? Obey his commands. Okay, you'll have a desire to know what his commands are, first of all. Um, because you know that the first step, the first step in the spiral downward for anyone spiritually is when you stop loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. When a man came to Jesus, that's what's number one. What should be first and foremost, that's what should be on the top priority in your life. Jesus said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And when you look at places like Revelation, okay, Revelation 2, when he's talking about the churches, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, but um, the church of Ephesus, Remember, he, he kind of gives them all this positive stuff. They're strong. They recognize the false teachers. They even rebuke the false teachers, and they expose them. They're doing a pretty good job. But the Bible says, I have something against you. You're doing all this good, but I got one thing against you. And what was it? They left their what? What's it say? Their first love. They left their first love. The first step down always is leaving the first love for God himself. That's what Jude is saying. So if we're going to avoid this spiritual disaster of these apostates, and we want to live victoriously in times of apostasy, we have to be conformed to the teaching of God's word, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and be committed to um, uh, the idea of, of God himself keeping everything under that. Now, in, in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, I just want to read this for us because it's, it's just good to remind us, okay, 
because it, sometimes we can pat ourselves on our backs, our heads too quickly. And I think this is what happened here. In, in Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, he writes this, the, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works, he says in verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance, all this is good, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. These are the false teachers that Jude's talking about. And found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but this one thing I have against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. See, and, and, and we who believe pursue sanctification. We want to become more and more like Christ. So we have to keep ourselves in this realm of the love of God. And it's important to understand that Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay? The problem with a lot of believers are walking around with their head down in the sand, you know, moping around constantly. They have no joy in their life. Maybe it's because they're not following the will of God. Maybe they're not abiding in God. Maybe they're not following his commands. So they're being defeated spiritually. Um, and we have this joy available to us. On the other hand, if we're disobedient and we live a life like that as a Christian, Hebrews 12, 3 to 11 talks about God moves us from the point of the position of blessing to the position of chastisement and discipline. And I don't want to be in that place. I don't think anybody in this room wants to be under the disciplining hand of God. <clears throat> and so we have to make sure that we're, we're committing all this to the Lord. Fourthly, um, a life that's built on the principles of, of the Lord is confident about the return of Jesus Christ in the hope of eternal life. Look at what he says, keeping yourselves in the love of God. And then he says this, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now we've been talking about the coming second return, all this stuff uh, over the last several weeks on Sundays and, and as we've gone through first and now second Thessalonians. Uh, but that's the hope, that's our expectation, that anticipation that the Lord is returning. It, it's really what makes us effective in our Christian life. If you don't have that hope, I mean, why would you do this, <laughs> right? If God isn't coming back and it's all a fairy tale, then why would you do this? Um, and he says here, waiting, you know, the, the mercy means that we don't deserve it. He says, waiting for the mercy we don't deserve it, but he's going to give it to us anyway. Um, but praise God, it's coming. And with it, it comes eternal life. Um, when we stop expecting the Lord's return, really, it, it gives us a lot of anguish. It gives us a lot of issues in our lives. All of a sudden, the world seems to take over because there's no hope. First uh, John 3, 3 says that every man who has this hope resting on him is doing what? It says purifying himself even as he is pure. And if that hope of Jesus Christ coming back again is not resting on you, then what is the result? We're getting ourselves in all kinds of sin 
all kinds of impurity, on the other hand. And so the key, according to, to Jude here, one of the keys to living victoriously and not getting involved in all this stuff um, is really anticipating the Lord's return. Anticipating the Lord's return. Um, that's one thing to think of when you're about to sin. What if you were sinning and the Lord came back? That doesn't mean your salvation is going to be canceled. But it's kind of like, you know, when you were young and you had a party and you're waiting for your parents to come home and you thought, oh, they're not going to be home for a couple hours and they showed up, you know, five hours early and you're going, ah! <laughs> right? I mean, you were caught, right? Well, you don't want that, you don't want that to happen. Um, it has a way of controlling the way that we live. Uh, it, it purifies our life. Um, so ask yourself, the next time you find yourself drifting off into a habitual sin or something like that, have you been anticipating the Lord's return? Because if you're not, you need to start. Have you been thinking about that moment? Finally, as we pursue sanctification, <clears throat> coming to the last one here, and this is kind of a lengthy one, basically it has the idea of being concerned for others um, and, you know, that, that idea of waiting for the Lord's return, it, it really means to welcome, uh, to, to do so with expectancy. It's not like a dread. It's something you're, you're really, really looking forward to. So it brings us to the concern that we're supposed to have for others. Um, now, there's some problems here in these verses. I'll just be honest with you in verses 22 up to 23. As you read different commentators, you read different people, very smart individuals. It's almost like everybody has a different take on this. Okay, because, well, let's just read it, and then you'll see what I mean. In, in verse 22, it says, and have mercy on those, I want to circle that, underline that, who doubt. And then verse 23 says, save others. So that's the second group, by snatching them out of the fire. And then a third group, to others, he says in verse 23, Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Um, there's all kinds of people that say these things mean all kinds of different things. So we're just going to kind of break it down a little bit. And, and part of the problems with these, these verses are, are these people believers or are they unbelievers? Are the, the you know, when it says um, in, in verse save others, is that talking about believers Okay, have mercy on those. Is that talking about believers or unbelievers? And then the third group, uh, those who uh, you have to show mercy to. Uh, and so another problem with the text, you have to figure that out first, and we'll kind of give you a rough idea where, where I'm going with this. But another problem with the text is that a lot of the manuscripts disagree here on, on verse 22. Because... Um, some manuscripts read this way, and uh, it, it basically it says, and convict those who doubt, not have mercy on them. And so when you stop and you read that, it's like, wow, that, that's a big difference. I mean, like conviction, mercy? I mean, what would you rather have? First, I'd rather have mercy, right? So, I mean, and the reason is, and you say, well, how could they make such a crazy mistake? Now, remember, we don't have the, you know, we have many, many manuscripts, but we don't have the original, original, completed manuscripts. So, you know, we're putting all this together by over, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, basically, pieces here and pieces there, and we're lining them up. Okay, this says the same thing as that. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, out of the many, many manuscripts in the New Testament, 
there was some 13,000 before the printing press. There's a lot of variations on this verse. And um, the problem is, is that the two Greek words that are used here, one for mercy and one for conviction, there's only two little letters difference in those words. And so that's an easy mistake for somebody who's copying, <laughs> you know, copying over these things and, and, hey, well, they just mislabeled something. Wow, one, one translation says conviction, one says mercy. Okay, now I share all that with you to say it doesn't really cause us an issue in the long run. Um, but some people say, well, why would he kind of repeat himself about having mercy? Why would he say have mercy on this group and then on the third group have mercy? I mean, that doesn't make much sense to some people. Well, it could be. It, it, you know, it doesn't, he could just be saying have mercy on both of them. Um, but one is conviction, exposing, rebuking, exhorting, uh, exhorting, and all that. And then you have mercy, which means to have pity upon or to have compassion upon. And so how do you figure this out? And the identification of those were to respond to are, are these unbelievers or are these believers? That's kind of an important thing because you respond to believers differently than you would respond to unbelievers according to the word of God. And so... When you, when you look at this, all right, um, and this is kind of, a, kind of a heady thing, and I'm not going to get into it that big of a deal, but on the one hand, you can understand convicting those who are doubting, but you could also build a case where, no, it probably says have mercy on those who doubt. I mean, there are people within the body of Christ who have doubts. Anybody here tonight have doubts about things? I have doubts. When I read the Bible sometimes, I have doubts, Okay about things that I read. I'm like, well, I don't understand this. It's, I, I doubt that. But I'm a believer. I'm a Christian, so it's okay. And so would you take someone like that and, and rebuke them? Or would you have mercy on them as a brother in, the, in Christ if they're, if they're a believer, if you want to take that, that, that point of view? Um, and so when you, when you look at all these, these three groups here, those who pose the greatest threat to the church also are those who you could say are part of its mission field. So even though these, these apostate teachers crept into the church, okay, I don't think Jude is just saying, just kick them out. Okay, I think part of it is, you know, you do have to reach out to these people. How will they understand the truth if you don't tell them the truth, right? We don't just consign them to hell and walk away. And I think what Jude is telling us here is that when you're entertaining, concerning yourself with these people, okay, uh, you have to be very, very careful. And so the first group, it seems like they're confused because it, it basically says they have doubts. And a lot of times, people who are doubting in their Christian faith are not really clear on what they believe. You know, if you've ever run into someone who's talking about theology, but they have no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> okay, um, they come up with a lot of things like, well, I don't think that matters. You know, I don't know about that. Or, they, they have a lot of doubts. They're not clear really on anything. And there's a lot of heretical, uh, deceptive statements that are made purposely by false teachers that can easily confuse people within the church because they look so smart and their life looks like they, they got it all together, but they're one of these people who crept in. And so Jude is saying, 
you know what? There, there's some people in the church that are cozying up to these people who are, are apostates, and they're starting to buy their story. And you have to be careful because they're starting to doubt the faith that was once delivered to them at the original. And so they're confused. So what do you do with a confused person? Just kick them out of the church? I don't think so. I think you, you have to clarify things with them. Um, that's what happened both in Corinth and in the region of Galatia. You re read in Galatians and in, in 2 Corinthians especially. You, you read what happened there. They, they allowed false lifestyles and, and antichrist lifestyles and, and false teachers within the church, and it corrupted the church. It corrupted the church. And that still happens today. You find people that are caught up in the web of deception, thoroughly confused about what they believe because they're listening not to, not to the word of God, not to someone who's teaching them the word of God. They're, 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 they're drinking from a million different fountains at once. And what's that, what that? That confuses you. And so you end up believing things you don't even know if it's right or not. And you end up doubting. You end up in a confused state. And so he's reaching out to them. And Jude is calling the church to have mercy on them, if that's the view you want to take, showing kindness to them. Because you know what? Who does the enemy always attack? The weakest link, right? He's going to go after the weakest sheep, <laughs> You know, when, when, when wolves are, are stalking uh, sheep, they'll look for someone that's, what, injured or limping along. They're not going to go after the strong one of the pack, okay? And false teachers prey on weak people, um, individuals who are unsure of their sal uh, salvation, unsure of their theology. They're, they're mired in doubt. And those who are strong, we have to have mercy on these souls, because they're torn, really, literally, between truth and error. And so we have to clarify things for them. Um, now, showing mercy doesn't mean you just turn a blind eye to all the wackiness they may be trying to cozy up to or believe in. Uh, that It's not ignoring the seriousness of false teaching. It's not commending them for being weak. Okay, we don't ever want to do that because he just got done telling us you have to keep yourselves in the love of God and you also have to build yourselves up. How do you do that? By exposing yourself more and more and more and more to the word of God. So it's important that we be diligent to present the gospel to them um, before they are uh, permanently caught up. And so that's the first group, I think. I, th I think the first group are those who are um, doubting um, they have uh, issues going on there. The second group, the confused, the second group is the convinced. Look at what it says, saved others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, a lot of people say, well, are these believers or unbelievers? I don't know. I don't know. Because we think of fire as what? Hell, right? So if they're in the fire of hell, then they're an unbeliever, Okay. Uh, but that may not be really what Jude is saying here. Uh, because remember, he's, he's talking about these people who crept in and they're, they're, they're polluting the church. And if you want to take the idea that, hey, these are believers, these are people within the church, people who doubt, uh, people who are even being convinced by these false teachers, he could be meaning, you know what, they're, they're getting pretty close here. They're, they're kind of being singed, you might say, by the fires of hell. Um, you have to be careful. Uh, in understanding that, but 
it's no longer just a matter of showing them mercy. It, it, you get into a um, kind of a rescue mode, okay? Um, you know, when you, when you show up on a, on a scene, accident scene, or whatever, you, you, there's different stages. Um, I could tell you a lot more than I could about it, but there's different stages of assessment. You know, what happens is, are there, is there somebody dead? Is there somebody triaged? You've got to triage the, the scene. You've got to figure out what's going on. Right? Well, I think this is what Jude is telling us here. First of all, you have these doubters, but then you have doubters that kind of turned into people that are being convinced by these false teachers, and they still may be believers, or maybe they think they're believers and they're not. We don't know. It doesn't tell us, really. Um, but in humility and in faith, we have to be, those who are spiritual have to be faithful. They have to be willing to be used by God to save these people from this errant teaching, whatever it might be. We don't save anybody from the fire, right? It's God. God works through us, okay? Um, so let's be real clear about that. God remains the ultimate source of our salvation. So we don't save anybody, but we are the means, right? I mean, he has left us here. He did tell us to be the salt, the light, um, James wrote this in James 5, verses 19 to 20. He says, My brethren, if anyone amongst you strays from the truth and one turns him back, in other words, he's going toward error and you, you turn him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow. So in a, in a sense, we are a a process of, of saving people. God uses us for that way. But what's interesting here is when he says snatching those from the fire, that's the same word that we saw in, in Corinthians when we were, or in uh, Thessalonians when we were talking about the rapture. Remember I called it the snatching away? It's the same word, harpazo. It's this violent action. It means to seize something with, with, with violence, taking somebody by force. And sometimes... In the church, there are people who are caught up in certain things, and that's the only thing they understand. And, you know, the mercy isn't cutting it anymore, <laughs> okay? And you have to step in, and you kind of have to say, hey, this is, has to stop, okay? We're putting you on notice. You know, this is, this is serious stuff. You know, we try to be nice to you. We try to encourage you this way. But you know what? That's, you're not understanding that, so this kind of amps it up a little bit. And so you're willing to... To, to kind of go the extra mile. He's really borrowing image, imagery from the prophets like Amos and Zechariah. He says, you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze when he was talking about Israel. Um, Jude apparently knew of some who had already been drawn into these damning doctrines of these apostates. Remember, they were having love feasts with them. They were sitting down at the table eating with them. They, most of the Christians in here didn't think anything was wrong with it. And so Jude's writing them saying, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to, some of your people are starting to buy into these, these guys' stories. And so he, he pictures them as maybe been singed by the very fire of hell, kind of a foreshadowing of that eternal inferno that if they actually turned into an apostate, they would go down that road just like the ones they're listening to. 
That's why we don't know. Is, is it talking about believers? Is it not? Is he saying you're getting close to that, snatching them out of the fire? Um, and, and a lot of times it's, you know, you can read to the cows come home and, and people tell you all kinds of different things. So I'm just kind of giving you my best, uh, best estimate here. Um, the only way to rescue such people from teaching like this, okay, the only way to do it uh, is to completely um, annihilate, completely crush any of this ideology that's going on in a church before it's too late. Um, Second Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 10. Listen to this. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Because you say, well, how do you crush their false teachings? It's only through the word of God. It's only through presenting truth. And he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen, he says, and take every thought captive to 